1837, Chelsea, Massachusetts. It's a warm, clear morning in late summer, and the sun is rising into the sky, spilling light onto the town below. Despite the early hour, the city of Chelsea is already wide awake. Horse-drawn carriages clack on the cobbles, and vendors set up their shops. The sounds of shouting and laughing travel across from the river as shipbuilders get to work along the waterfront. Inside a large grand house, a middle-aged man wakes up. His name is John Fenno. Yawning and stretching sleepily, Fenno wanders to the window at the end of his bedroom. As he peels back the heavy satin curtains, he smiles to himself, watching the sun dance on the sparkling mystic river. Suddenly, the sound of a doorbell rings through his house and pulls him out of his sleepy daydream. Fenno grabs a robe from the back of his door, slides into a pair of slippers, and hurries down the stairs, muttering in annoyance at whoever's calling at this time of day. When he opens the front door, he sees a postman standing outside. Smiling politely, Fenno asks what he has for him. In reply, the postman reaches into his bag and draws out a rectangular brown package. It's heavy and sinks through Fenno's fingers as he flips it over to read the stamp. The package has made its way from Charlestown, Boston, a small town just a few miles south from here. This location takes Fenno by surprise. He isn't expecting anything from out of town. He asks the postman if there's a letter or note to accompany the package, something to explain who it's from, but the postman shakes his head. Sighing in frustration, Fenno drops a few coins into the postman's open palm, bids him a good morning, and heads back into his house. The second he's alone, he tears the brown paper from the parcel and stares excitedly at what's inside. It's a book, but not any ordinary book. As Fenno turns it around in his hands, his fingers float over the strange texture of the cover. It's thick and soft, not typical leather, but something similar, certainly animal skin. Its dull gray color makes Fenno think it might be deer. Fenno puts the book back onto its front and examines it more closely. Then his eyes widen in horror as he reads the inscription. In bright gold letters upon a black leather square are the Latin words. Hic liber waltonis cute compactus est, meaning this book is bound in Walton's skin. At the gruesome realization that he's holding human skin Fenno drops the book. He perhaps wants to throw it out of the window, get it as far away from him as possible. It's likely that Fenno wants to wash his hands and get that awful feeling of skin scrubbed off forever. But at the same time, his curiosity has been awoken. He recognizes the name Walton as a notorious criminal in Massachusetts. But why is a book bound in his skin? And most pressing of all, why has it been sent to Fenno? Swallowing his rising panic and disgust, Fenno carefully opens it and turns to the title page. It reads, The Narrative of the Life of James Allen. The name rings a slight bell, but Fenno can't quite place it, so he flicks through to page one and begins reading the mysterious biography. As John Fenno slowly reads the pages of the skin-bound book, he has no idea that what he's about to read is a series of strange confessions. Confessions made by a fearsome prisoner 
as he waited to die. And all the while, Fenno will wonder what he has to do with it. Where does he fit into this disturbing narrative? Who really is James Allen? And why is he now holding Walton's skin? At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of a mysterious book bound in human skin, pages which held the dark secrets of one of Massachusetts' most notorious criminals. It's about a man called James Allen, how he rose from petty thief to feared highwayman, his brutal fight with a victim who refused to surrender, and a haunting deathbed confession which horrified the police and the public and solidified Allen's name in American crime folklore. I'm Estefania Hageman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It's June 1824, Boston. The midday sun hovers over one of the town's bustling shipyards, scorching the bare backs of hundreds of workmen. All around the yard, a multitude of sounds fill the air. Men barking instructions at one another, hammering the sides of ships, heaving heavy machinery and planks of wood. Above them, seagulls squawk in the sky and out in front, the murky waves of the ocean lap back and forth. Among the mass of workmen is 15-year-old James Allen. Allen is an orphan with no family, friends, or money to his name. His parents died when he was young, and he grew up in the care of his grandparents. After their deaths, Allen was taken in by several families in Massachusetts before running away to Boston. He arrived just months ago and found work as a shipbuilder. Alan is a bright, intelligent boy and hopes to learn the skills of the trade quickly. Alan has been working in this particular shipyard for a matter of weeks. Although the money isn't anything special, 
it's at least a steady job. What's more, for someone like Alan who's naturally athletic and restless, the physical nature of the work suits him well. Shortly after midday, Alan takes a break. He's been up since the crack of dawn, laboring nonstop in the blistering sun. He's tired, sweaty, not to mention hungry. So obeying the rumbling in his stomach, he jumps down from the ship and wanders off to find some food. But as he leaves the vibrant shipping yard and walks through the dark, quiet shadows of the docks, he starts to feel uneasy. He thinks about turning back when a hand taps him on the shoulder. Alan spins around in terror, his heart thumping against his chest. When he looks up, he meets the piercing blue eyes of a towering stranger. His face is dirty and unshaven, his clothes torn, and when he smiles, it fills Alan with fear rather than comfort. His mouth is missing several teeth. Before Alan can escape, the man reaches out a hand and introduces himself as Stephen Sims. Shaking Alan's hand vigorously, he says he has a job for him. Sims wants the young man to carry his trunk a few blocks to his house on Southwick Street. He'd do it himself, he explains, but he's been walking for miles and his muscles are sore. Alan hesitates. He doesn't like the look of Sims at all and wants to get away. But before he can make his excuses, Sims tempts him with the promise of a $10 payment, around $300 by today's standards. This is too big an offer to decline. It's way more than Alan would earn in a week at the shipyard. In fact, more than he'd earn in a whole year. So, without questioning where or how a ragged-looking man like Sims got hold of such a fortune, Alan agrees. He drags the trunk along the cobbles to a house on Southwick Street. Although he doesn't know it yet, Alan's gut feeling was right. The reason Sims is in Boston, dressed in shabby clothes and heaving a heavy trunk, is because he's just been released from prison. Stephen Sims is a convicted criminal, one who happens to be looking for a partner in crime. In the days following their first meeting, James Allen and Sims' paths cross numerous times. Sims appears to be interested in Allen and makes frequent calls to his boarding house. Allen accepts Sims' friendship gladly. After all, he doesn't know anyone else in the city and is grateful for even one companion. Soon, the two men grow close and spend days in each other's company. On one of these days, when Sims is yet again paying Allen a visit, he reveals his criminal history. Surprisingly, Alan isn't put off by news that his best friend is an ex-convict. Quite the opposite. He's intrigued by the older man's stories, his tales of lawbreaking, running from police, and the reckless life on the road. As the relationship between the two men deepens, Alan comes to view Sims as a role model, someone to teach and guide him. As a teenager with no parents and no friends, he's quick to let Sims fill the gaps of both becoming a paternal figure, the friend and father he never had. In late June of that year, Sims convinces Alan to commit his first crime. In the dead of the night, the two men break into a local Charleston store and make away with $60, over $1,000 in today's money. Splitting it in half between them, it's not going to make them rich overnight, but for Alan, the theft is about more than the money. 
The $30 he's stolen proves to him that there's an alternative to honest work. Rather than slaving away at the shipyard from dusk till dawn, scraping together a pitiful handful of cents, Alan realizes that he can steal the equivalent to his wages in one night. The thought is revolutionary for the impressionable teenager. At once, it knocks him off the steady, honest path he'd been traveling on and sends him down the road of crime. As James Allen grows from teenager to young adult, he embraces his new life of lawlessness. He earns money by robbing stores, breaking into banks, and looting houses in and around Boston. Occasionally, he's accompanied by his friend Stephen Sims, but more often than not, Allen acts alone. He seems to enjoy the challenge of committing these crimes. His mind is driven by the possibility of finding a fortune, and he never spares a thought for those whose livelihoods he's robbing. Although Alan doesn't have the best luck with robbery and only makes away with a handful of dollars here and there, at least it's easy money, far more painless than slaving away at the shipyard. What Alan is good at is escaping serious punishment. Despite being arrested on several occasions and enduring time in jail, his sentences are never too long. This is surprising, in a strictly religious, conservative state such as 19th century Massachusetts, most thieves face years behind bars. In fact, many are sent to the gallows for their crimes. How then does the young James Allen continually avoid this fate? It's a question that will remain unanswered for years. And in the meantime, Allen will continue wreaking havoc on the towns and cities of Massachusetts. It's now June, 1825. One year has passed since that fateful day where James Allen met Stephen Sims and embarked on a life of crime. Now 16 years old, Allen is living with Sims in a boarding house near Roxbury, a lively industrial Boston neighborhood. Although Allen has committed numerous crimes himself by now, he still looks up to Sims as a role model. He relies on the older criminal to show him the ropes, teaching him more about crime. One day, as the sun starts to dip below the buildings of Roxbury and a chilly evening breeze picks up, it's Sims' turn to ask Alan for a favor. One of his good friends, an escaped convict called William Ross, is currently on the run. Ross is hiding out in the plains of Roxbury Common and has been surviving on food and drink brought to him by Sims. However, Sims doesn't have time to go to the common tonight and needs Alan to take the supplies to Ross instead. So ever the obliging apprentice criminal, 16-year-old James Allen packs a small bag full of food, grabs a traveling cloak, and heads out into the dusky summer's evening. Although he doesn't know it yet, this encounter is about to change his life. The following is a television casting advertisement from Spotify. Have you ever been the recipient of a deathbed confession? the only person to hear someone's deepest, darkest secret as they took their final breath. Curious to investigate? Spotify is working on a new unscripted docu-series based on the podcast Deathbed Confessions and is looking for family, friends, nurses, journalists, or anyone who has been involved in these situations to share their stories. If interested, Please submit 150 to 300 words about the confession 
and your experience to the following email address, castingforshow23 at gmail.com. That's the numbers two and three. Please include your name, age, gender, occupation, relation to the deceased, current city, and phone number as well. If you have a personal connection to a real deathbed confession and want to share it, email castingforshow23 at gmail.com. That's castingforshow23 at gmail.com. The numbers two and three. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When Alan arrives at Ross's hiding place, deep into the undergrowth of the common, he introduces himself as a friend of Sims. Ross warms to him immediately and invites the young criminal to take a walk. Together as the sun continues to set, the two men stroll down a quiet, winding path on Roxbury Common. To one side of them is a thick forest, and to the other, a dusty road. Every few minutes, a carriage clatters down the road, rolling slowly past the men before disappearing into the darkness. On one of these occasions, Ross abruptly changes the subject of their conversation. Pointing to the back of a distant carriage, he asks Alan if he's ever heard of highway robbery. Alan nods his head, of course he has. Everyone knows what a highwayman is, especially those living in 19th century Boston. Due to its position on the east coast of America, Boston plays a major role in the nation's trade. Ships carrying valuable cargo land in Boston's dock every single day, before being loaded into carriages and sent all over the country. Because of its ties with trade, Boston is a prime target for ambitious highwaymen. Criminals know that if they attack and seize the right carriage, they're sure to find a treasure trove of wealth. Luxuries and fine goods of the middle class and high society who make their money from Boston's famous commerce. These riches would make any man wealthy overnight. William Ross admits to Allen that he himself is one of those notorious highway robbers. He gives Allen a romantic notion of robbery. Poor, humble men targeting the greedy bourgeois businessmen and stripping them of their excessive luxuries. It seems to Allen as though Ross is a heroic figure a modern-day Robin Hood. However, despite the promises of wealth and pride, Alan knows that highway robbery isn't without its drawbacks. For starters, it's perhaps the most dangerous type of crime around. Whereas burglars and thieves break into houses under the cover of darkness and steal away unnoticed, highwaymen confront their victims directly at gunpoint. They need to be visible in order to bargain for money, possessions, or their lives. Because of this necessary contact, there's a significant amount of violence involved with highway robbery. Coachmen are often armed and some have the temerity to fight back. Worse still, if the robbery goes wrong, it's unlikely the highwaymen will escape alive. And of course, the punishment for highway robbery is as severe as it could be. 
the unlucky men who are caught in the act are sent straight to the gallows. Due to these dangers, highway robbery has always been out of the question for 16-year-old James Allen. He prefers to stick to the less profitable but slightly safer work of robbing unguarded banks, stores, and houses. However, as his new friend William Ross spouts wisdom about it and mentions his own time as a successful highwayman, the cogs in Allen's brain begin to turn. He might be too afraid to become a highwayman right now, but the seeds have certainly been planted. Following his introduction to William Ross in 1825, James Allen's life barely changes at first. He continues to frustrate police all around New England with his petty crimes and thefts, and watches his teenage years disappear from within various jail cells. On multiple occasions, he manages to break free from prison and lives his life on the run. Although his criminal record is sky-high by now, Allen's punishments are shockingly lenient. He's given a few years behind bars here and there, and is almost always released early. It's surprising that Allen has shown such mercy from the law. His friends don't fare so well. Stephen Sims is sent to a brutal state prison some years later where he dies of consumption. And William Ross meets an early death at the gallows for committing robbery. Understandably, the deaths of his friends play on James Allen's mind. He begins to think that maybe the risks aren't worth the reward. He barely makes enough from the robberies to sustain himself. It's not worth being sent to the gallows for stealing a handful of dollars. So after a five-year stint in jail, 22-year-old James Allen decides to turn his life around. But instead of going on the straight and narrow, he takes a different path. Allen remembers the conversation he had with William Ross all those years ago, when Ross spoke so passionately about being a highway robber and promised riches beyond any man's wildest dreams. Given Allen's talent for avoiding serious punishment, he perhaps thinks that he can escape the fate of his friends. And as someone naturally drawn to adventure and danger, always restless to try something new, Allen's mind is swayed. In the spring of 1831, he decides to become a highwayman. As spring gives way to summer, then fall, James Allen moves between the thick forests of New England haunting the eerie roads that wind between towns. Under the cover of darkness, wrapped in a black cloak, his eyes concealed beneath a broad hat and his face masked by a handkerchief, Alan jumps out on unsuspecting travelers. Pistol raised for all to see, he shouts the dreaded ultimatum of his trade. Your money or your life, immediately. Then, he makes away with whatever his victims cough up. Allen meets moderate success with his new way of life, but it's not much better than his days as a petty thief. Rarely does he encounter the wealthy upper classes and troves of treasure William Ross spoke of. More often than not, the travelers don't have much money on them, and Allen is forced to retreat with a handful of dollars, jewelry, or an inexpensive watch. Sometimes, he even comes away empty-handed. But what Allen doesn't realize is that he just needs to be patient. Soon, he'll catch sight of one of the wealthiest men in Boston, a man whose carriage ride home takes him straight past Allen's hideout. It's late 1833, 
and 24-year-old James Allen is in Chelsea, Massachusetts. He's set up camp at the side of a long, winding, dusty road near to the Salem Turnpike, with a collar of his cloak pinned up against his neck and two loaded pistols hanging from his belt. He's poised to attack anyone who comes his way. As the sun starts to set and dusk casts shadows over the woodland, Alan edges closer to the road. He keeps his eyes peeled for one carriage in particular, one he hopes will pass by any second now. You see, this morning while he was loitering around a Boston market, Alan spotted a well-dressed man with a large pocketbook full of cash. Alan suspects that this man spent the day at the market and will shortly be returning home via the Salem Turnpike. As it turns out, his suspicions are correct. Suddenly, out of the near darkness, a horse-drawn carriage stumbles onto the road. Alan peers through the foliage and recognizes one of the men at once. Sitting in his thick coat and expensive hat, it's the wealthy man from the market. Without wasting any more time, Alan leaps from his hideout and runs towards the carriage. Grabbing the horse by its reins, he forces it to grind to a sudden halt. The driver screams in terror and flees at the sight of Alan and his pistols. But the wealthy man stays where he is. Even when Alan shouts at him, demanding his money or his life, he doesn't move. Then, everything happens in a split second. Alan is thrown to the ground as the wealthy man leaps on top of him and pins him to the floor. Alan can taste the dry dust of the road in his mouth and feels each blow against his body as the man savagely attacks him. Gritting his teeth in pain, Alan wrestles himself up and throws the wealthy man onto his back. The two men struggle against each other, both gasping for breath as they try to inflict as much pain as possible. Then, from the corner of his eye, Alan sees the man reach into his coat pocket. He's perhaps going to draw out a knife, gun, weapon of some sort. Instinctively, Alan grabs one of his own pistols and raises it above his head a warning sign for the wealthy man to put his weapon down. But in his haste to draw his gun, Alan's finger squeezes the trigger. A bullet flies out, tearing straight into the wealthy man's shoulder as he falls to the ground, yelling and swearing in pain. Panicked, Alan leaps up and sprints away, leaving the man to bleed uncontrollably onto the road. Rushing back to the undergrowth where he'd tied his horse, Alan jumps into the saddle and gallops off into the darkness of Chelsea. Contrary to what James Allen expects, the man he attacked will not die from his injuries. Instead, he'll make a full, fast recovery, one which will leave him with a hunger for revenge. In the days following the attack, James Allen goes about his life as usual. He returns to his home in Boston and prepares for his next highway robbery, giving little thought to the wealthy man he ambushed. Although Alan has escaped justice innumerable times before, this time, he's not in the clear. The person he attacked on the Salem Turnpike was a man called John Fenno, a respected and influential figure in Boston. As such, when Fenno reports the attempted robbery, Boston police are keen to find the perpetrator. Based on Fenno's description, they have two men in mind. The first is a notorious criminal in Massachusetts, known as a highwayman and a thief. 
he's a man the Boston magistrates would dearly love to bring to justice. Interestingly, his name will become extremely familiar to Fenno in a matter of years. George Walton. The second suspect is, of course, James Allen. At this moment in time, Allen must be known to police as a seasoned criminal, a professional robber, and petty thief. When they discover that he's branched out into highway robbery, they are convinced he must be their man. So police hatch a plan which they hope will bring Allen to justice. Almost one week after the attack on John Fenno, Allen is visited at his house in West Boston by a man who claims to be a criminal. The visitor is obviously ragged and disheveled and tells Allen he plans to rob a store on India Street and wants his help. But Allen is suspicious, and rightly so. He correctly guesses that this man is not a criminal at all, but a police officer in disguise, one hoping to catch Allen red-handed in the act of robbery and send him straight to jail. Allen worries that once there, he might also be tried for the murder of John Fenno. You see, he doesn't know for sure that Fenno survived his attack and believes he may have killed the man. Allen knows that there's only one punishment for murderers, hanging from the gallows. As he listens to the disguised policeman, nodding and smiling in all the right places, his mind races with what he should do. Terrified of being sent to the gallows, he decides to make a run for it. As soon as the police officer leaves, Alan rushes to his bedroom, packs a suitcase full of belongings, and runs from his house to the docks. He hastily makes arrangements to board a ship later that day and sail out of America. Only then, when there are hundreds of miles of water between him and his country, will he truly be safe. Believing he's got a few hours to himself until the ship departs, Alan wanders back into his house to gather more possessions. When he gets there, he realizes his mistake. Every corner of his house is crawling with police officers. They're blocking the entrances, standing poised in case he makes a run for it, and a police wagon waits to take him away. An officer informs Alan that they have enough evidence to arrest him for the attack on John Fenno. What that evidence may be, he doesn't divulge. Although Alan isn't familiar with Fenno's name, he's quick to figure out who they're referring to. He's only had such a brutal attack with one man in his career as a highwayman, so he remembers it well. With no options left, Alan hangs his head in defeat and lets the officers take him. They clamp him in handcuffs and drag him into the wagon. From there, he's taken to the local police station and charged with attempting to rob Fenno. It's not clear how Alan reacts when he hears that Fenno, the man he believed he may have killed, is alive. Is he filled with relief, knowing that he didn't commit a murder? Or is he filled with dread? Now that Fenno's alive and well, he can testify that Alan is a highway robber, a crime which is punishable by death. On February 21st, 1834, members of the Charleston jury find James Allen guilty. He's convicted of robbery and sentenced to 20 years behind bars. It's the longest amount of jail time the 24-year-old has ever received. As a result, Allen is devastated. He knows that he'll spend the next two decades locked up, watching his 20s and 30s disappear from behind the iron bars of prison. 
it won't be until he's well into his 40s that he'll finally be released. By then, he'll be a middle-aged man, weakened by the hardships of prison life. It's unlikely he'll be able to find success in highway robbery again, and could well be plunged into poverty. With these worrying thoughts swirling through his mind, he's led away from the courtroom and taken to a state prison in Massachusetts. The second he's locked behind bars, James Allen swears revenge. He vows vengeance on the man whose testimony put him here and ended his life as he knows it. John Fenno. The years pass and James Allen struggles to adjust to life behind bars. He begs the warden to set him free, pleads with lawyers to renegotiate his sentence, and during a particularly low point, he even attempts suicide. On several occasions, Allen tries to break out of jail, sometimes with other inmates, but more often than not, on his own. One of his plans succeeds in March 1835, and for a brief spell, he's a free man once more. But inevitably, Allen is eventually caught and dragged back to the state prison. One year after his return, in February 1836, there's a sudden outbreak of influenza in the prison. The contagious disease spreads through the cells like wildfire, infecting hundreds of men and sending many to early graves. The disease is unavoidable, and James Allen is struck down by it aged 26 years old. Almost immediately, it cripples his young body, plaguing him with a rasping cough, aching joints, and a high fever. It's during this time, while losing his battle with illness, that Allen makes an unexpected decision. One which will shock police officers, horrify the public for generations to come, and solidify his place in the history of Massachusetts crime. James Allen decides to write an autobiography. Throughout the year 1836, Allen embarks on the arduous task of retelling his life. While spring melts into summer, gives way to fall, and eventually freezes to winter, he revels in the sordid tales of his crimes, crimes that are of great interest to the prison warden. Allen talks day after day, week after week, of his life as a criminal. All the while, the warden dutifully writes his words down. However, as Allen's stories develop, it becomes clear that his book is not simply an autobiography. The tales of a young criminal who spent his days running from the law, far from it. In fact, Allen's work is a deathbed confession, or rather, a series of confessions. The first revelation Allen makes is that this is not his only name. Although he was born James Allen, he's used a variety of aliases over the years. Four, to be precise. Allen has been known as Jonas Pierce, James York, Burley Grove, and George Walton. This last name makes the warden sit up in shock. George Walton is a notorious criminal in Massachusetts. Police describe him as being a bold, daring, and reckless fellow. A very dangerous man to be at large in the community. In fact, Walton was the first man they suspected of attacking John Fenno in 1833. The thief who Boston police were so desperate to catch but Walton proved elusive. Is it possible that George Walton and James Allen are one in the same? 
Allen insists that they are. He claims to have committed some of his crimes under the name of Walton and was even sent to jail on multiple occasions with his alias. So whenever police sent out arrest warrants for Walton and Allen, they were in fact going after the same man. This collection of aliases could explain Allen's good luck with the law, why he was never sent to the gallows for his crimes as his less fortunate friends were. You see, by changing his name upon each arrest, his criminal record was kept relatively clean. It seems as though police fell for his aliases and believed Jonas Pierce, James York, Burley Grove, George Walton, and James Allen to be five different men. When in fact, it was one crafty criminal haunting the highways of Massachusetts. The second confession Allen makes is that there are numerous crimes for which he's never been caught. He tells the Warden of Times that he escaped houses unnoticed with pocketfuls of silver and piles of cash. Sometimes, when he sensed police were onto him, he framed other men for these crimes. He gives two instances when he offloaded his stolen goods to innocent men sleeping rough on the streets. Once, he even gave the stolen possessions away to a friend as a gift. And on a separate occasion, he attended the court trial of one of the men he'd framed and watched as the innocent man was interrogated for a crime Allen had committed. Over the days and weeks in prison, illness tightens its hold on Allen, making him weak and frail. By the spring of 1837, he's barely able to speak. Nevertheless, he has one last twist to his tale. A twist which is sinister and disturbing and offers a dark insight into Alan's mind. This alone will become Alan's lasting legacy. He admits to the warden that, throughout his years as a highwayman, there was only one victim who fought back. This individual was John Fenno, the man whose testimony in 1833 got him locked away for 20 years. Perhaps in homage to Fenno's bravery, or more likely out of revenge, Alan tells the warden that he'd like to send this book to Fenno's house. But there's a catch, a grotesque, chilling twist. James Allen requests that the book be bound in his own skin. James Allen finishes dictating his autobiography in March 1837. He lives for another four months before dying of consumption on July 17th. He's just 27 years old. The prison warden who recorded Allen's confessions is true to his word. He completes the book and sends it to a publisher in Boston with the grisly request that it be bound in a sample of Allen's skin. Once this has been done, it's delivered to John Fenno's home where the unsuspecting man is left to discover the horrors of the skin book and find out where he fits into this strange narrative. But although we know that Fenno receives the book, we can only guess as to how he reacts. Is he filled with horror and disgust at the realization he's holding the skin of his attacker? Does he feel sorry for Alan? After all, it was he who turned him into the police and sent him to jail where he met his death at just 27 years old. Or maybe Fenno finds humor in the whole affair, as though he's part of some dark, twisted comedy. While we can't be certain of Fenno's thoughts, it's clear that the book has a strong impact on him. He keeps it in his family and passes it down to his children, grandchildren, 
and even great-grandchildren. Over time, as the generations come and go, the name James Allen seeps into Massachusetts legend. Although he was a notorious criminal of his time, his lawless deeds are soon forgotten, replaced by a grim legacy. James Allen is immortalized as the man who bound a book in his own skin. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Sid Vicious, the Sex Pistols' infamous bass player. The 1970s sees the birth of punk rock, music that rebels against the mainstream. Everything about it is rebellious and revolutionary. One of the most famous faces leading this new movement is Sid Vicious. He's a walking headline for punk rock, the very definition of anti-establishment. But sadly, Sid's life of excess is littered with tragedy and heartbreak. And when it finally implodes, it does so in the most spectacular fashion. But did Sid Vicious bring this explosive downfall upon himself? Or did someone close to him give him a final, fatal helping hand? A deathbed confession given years later will answer this question once and for all. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Jane O. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Sound design by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 